Hi, this is Design Lota, the podcast about life as Indian designer. I'm Angie and I'm Sushi. The past few months have been a challenging time for a number of industries, the craft sector being one of them. At the same time, crafts have been in the news quite a bit lately, particularly textiles. Why don't you give us the headlines, Sushi? Let's see. Some of the oldest handloom co-ops, including Charaka, announced that they were shutting down because of the cash crunch. The government also made a highly controversial move to scrap the handloom board. And then a certain document happened to resurface around the same time. Right. Uh, This was a catalogue curated by John Forbes Watson. Uh, This document showcased about 700 samples of different patterns, materials and textures of Indian fabrics. Sounds like a dream, right? Except Mm. that this guy was a Britisher who was also the museum director of the India Museum in the 1860s. And it was intended to inspire students and manufacturers in Britain to replicate low-cost fabrics and sell them back to the Indian market. Yikes. Even today, when it comes to traditional and indigenous art forms, there's a thin line between showcasing or giving exposure versus benefiting unfairly from the work of socially and economically disadvantaged communities. And as confusing as it can be to navigate that fine line, this is a good time for us as Indians to learn all we can about the richness and the stories behind our Indian textiles, be it as designers or as consumers. Aditi Jain, a textile designer who works with handloom weavers, helps us dive into this conversation. Hi, Aditi, and welcome to Design Lota. Hi, Sush. How are you? I'm good. So what are you up to these days? Um, okay, surprisingly, given the lockdown, I've still got a lot going on. So I've been working with Gandhigram uh, for the last uh, about two, two and a half years. Uh, and now that we're all working from home, uh, so all the coordination and everything is happening over email and WhatsApp. And my family also runs two businesses called uh, Sarangi and uh, Rasvihar. So Sarangi is again for handloom saris and all things handmade. So I've been uh, like, especially with the lockdown, um, trying to diversify our products a little more to different crafts. And uh, Rasvihar is all about customized fine jewelry. So I'm experimenting with some new products there also. (laughs) Dipping into a little bit of product design. So we're all like really curious about how you ended up doing what you're doing. And we would love to hear your story, like a brief introduction of how you got into textiles and specifically into traditional textiles. Um, okay, so it actually started with a short stint, uh, you know, at Sarangi with my father. Uh, so I guess sometime in 2013, uh, I just finished my graduation in Viscom from MOP. And I was pretty lost and clueless. I had no idea, you know, what I wanted to do. Honestly, Viscom didn't excite me as much. So now that I was working at the store, uh, I was surrounded by a lot of beautiful textiles and uh, it was really inspiring, you know. So I realized, okay, textiles seems like something I could do. I was still not sure. But at this point, I really had nothing to lose. So I uh, applied uh, for a textile design course at uh, NID for my master's and somehow managed to get in. And I think that really set the solid foundation for me in terms of concepts. Uh, how do you understand crafts or how do you understand this? Like for me, up until then, textile was just fabric and material. And, you know, it's about the stories or the process and the techniques, all that I only learned at NID. 
Um, so, and shortly after graduating, I uh, heard of this opening at Gandhi Gram. So I just, uh, I had to, I had to find myself over there somehow. So yeah, that's basically a short gist of <laughs> how I how I got here. Wow. So what's the design process like at Gandhi Gram? Like from design all the way to the actual production. Um, okay, so uh, so with Gandhi Gram actually it's a really interesting anecdote. So initially when I uh, joined there about two years ago, um, I so I. I've learned textiles very academically, right? So I wanted to, you know, make a proper spec sheet for every design. And so I presented them uh, like all the weavers and artisans, like they were all sitting and I was trying to present this, uh, you know, this is how I'm planning to give you the spec sheet. Like, do you guys understand it? Should I change anything? And they all just stared, you know, they were just staring at me. And then one of them said, okay, listen, we don't understand this at all. Uh, we, you tell us and we'll do it. This paperwork is not for us. Okay, so I was uh, like a bit disappointed in the sense that, okay, now how do I do this? You know, how do I still make a proper spec sheet or what is an efficient way of uh, handing out design and, you know, and eventually, you know, I just said, okay, let me go with the flow and see what happens. Um, so what, I, the way we used to work with them is, um, like every week when they would come, we would have a verbal discussion of the design, maybe like a small sketch or like with just a ballpoint pen or something. And that's it. And like 90% the design would come, uh, you know, as per the discussion. So uh, we were would just be given plain Cora undyed yarn. And each viewer would come to the dyeing house and get their warps dyed in whatever colors that uh, they wanted. Now with this process, there was a bit of an issue because each time the dyeing house has to stop the production that they're doing to attend to the weaver because even, you know, the weaver needs it immediately. And also when you're dyeing small quantities, the raw material wastage is a lot more. So one of the uh, first tasks that I had uh, when I joined was to standardize a shade card. And I bet you loved that. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun to do because we had to, uh, you know, mix a lot of these dye colors to get a particular shade. And sometimes we'd mix two different dye colors and still get the same shade. <laughs> you know, so it was a lot of fun experimenting with that. Um, so once we sort of... Uh, arrived at one set of colors we started also i realized that we needed to dye these in bulk bulk meaning about 500 hangs typically one warp requires about uh, 200 so i said okay at least 500 500 in like four five colors if we have that as uh, you know in standby at all times it'll probably make it easier and it did eventually because uh, the weavers they the one step of the process was taken care for them so they just had to come and we discussed the the design and the colors and they would pick the already dyed yarn. So that way even the dye raw material, a little bit of the wastage was saved. So that and of course the weaver has his own preloom processes uh, where he needs to do the sizing. Then they join the warp ends. Each of these like take about a day. So it takes a weaver about two, three days to just set up a warp to pull out four saris. Wow. <laughs> yeah and after this of course there's the marketing and sales which thankfully i don't have to trouble myself too much with also i do like talking to customers because 
that's how I get uh, design feedback. I get an idea of what people are looking for. So during an exhibition, if uh, a customer says that, oh, I don't like big borders, I want a small, just a color at the edge. So uh, I start incorporating that in the next set of designs. Or, uh, you know, sometimes it could be a technical feedback also where they would say that, see, this yarn is getting stuck to my finger. So can you, yeah, so (laughs) that way it's really, I I like customer interaction, but I don't enjoy the sales part of it. So when you talked about textiles and having to make specification sheets and things like that, it seems like a very technical sort of discipline. Uh, But then... Textiles is something that we often look at uh, as, as someone who's not from a textile design background as something very surface level, something very aesthetic. So do you feel like textiles are more of an art or a science or both? And can you talk about how art and science play a role in defining textiles? Uh, it's actually a really interesting question. And um, so recently at Sarangi, we uh, just, sort of published a blog article on how um, the title is what you get is more than what you see we just launched these organic uh, desi cotton towels from Cascom, and uh, you know they look really plain and simple on the surface but uh, there's like a big backstory to it which is obviously not visible on the cloth Right, so the cotton is actually an indigenous uh, variety uh, of Karungani cotton, which is local to Tamil Nadu. It is resilient, you know, it's completely rain fed. There's no need for pesticides or chemicals of any sort. It's hand spun and hand woven. You need to be told all of these things to know that that simple fabric has all of this story behind it. And these are also the decision-making factors, right? Only when a customer or a person knows that this is all that has happened, will they be inclined to buy it? So to me, it is sort of like art in the sense that it's the value that the end user or the consumer is, you know, what they see in the product. And then therefore, are they willing to then invest in it? whether it is monetarily or even emotionally. And I guess most Indian crafts are valuable because of these uh, intrinsic qualities, whether it is the community support that those crafts have built or whether it is a dying skill itself. Uh, It thrives because we all do value the art art element in it. And uh, science, of course, I mean, textile is a lot of science, whether it is weaving, which is mathematics, lots of mathematics, or whether it is dyeing, natural dyeing. Yeah, and then that is, if you go beyond uh, traditional textiles or, and into even technical textiles, it's a lot of science and tech has gone into it. So textile is, like I said, on, on the surface, I mean, it looks very surface, but there is a lot of depth to it. And the work that you do currently is more focused on the slow and timeless, on sustainable processes, right? Right. And offline, a lot of millennials and also even middle-aged people are opting for this slow, timeless pieces uh, as opposed to fast fashion now. But I feel like it's still more of a niche, right? There hasn't been like mass adoption of, of uh, slow textiles. 
So what do you think are the barriers that prevent it from becoming more mainstream and becoming the status quo? Uh, I guess the first would be price. Everyone is used to paying a lot less for a lot more. So I think that would be, I guess, the first barrier one would have to cross. And I guess the second is also design options. Uh, in fast fashion, you have a lot of options, sizes, colors, uh, fits. Uh, but, uh, you know, with the slower, uh, more conscious clothing, it's not possible to give you all of these options. And also, not everyone has well-designed products. And for someone to be able to find like that one classic piece that they know they're going to savor for the next at least uh, eight, ten years, that can be quite challenging. Um, also, I guess it does take a lot of effort to remind yourself um, that that price of uh, one expensive, well-made classic piece really trumps uh, a lot of the fast fashion, quick yeah. clothing. So the high price does seem to be like a really discouraging factor, right? When it comes to opting for anything, any of these authentic Kadi textiles. Yeah. And also, I think I've heard a lot of people comment up about how it's ironic that the very symbol of democracy and independence, like how we Indians know it, uh, is now unaffordable by the masses. Yes. So do you think it's really unaffordable by the masses or do you think that's more of a perception and depends on the sales channels where you find it? And what do you think we can do as designers to aid the democratization of Indian textiles? Not in a way that cheapens them, but in a way that it becomes accessible to everybody because it's a part of our heritage. Uh, okay, so I'm a bit uh, torn between this two. I mean, it's an important question. Uh, I do believe that these products, uh, they should be available and affordable for the masses and the you know, products should first reach the local market. And even the makers themselves now, you know, don't really get to wear what they make because it's inherently expensive. Um, it, so the idea does seem a bit far-fetched at the moment. Uh, but that's the thing, right? The whole concept behind Khadi was uh, self-sufficiency when Gandhiji brought it up. Uh, so the idea was that each person makes their own cloth and they're not dependent on any external entity for their clothing needs at least. Uh, and in the recent decade, that has obviously changed. Our aspirations have changed. We don't have that kind of time or the skill set to be, uh, you know, making our own clothes. So when we want uh, other people to be making uh, our clothes to do the work and we want a variety of options, then naturally we have to pay the price that comes with it, you know, because each step you have to pay that person who is involved. Uh, especially with hand processes, you know, we want to give them high quality of living and everything. So it all comes with a price. So that's that's where my dichotomy with this whole thing is as well. Uh, and uh, specifically with Khadi, the government does throw in a subsidy to make it slightly more affordable. And I do think it is. I mean, it's really not as much. We do buy these branded pants for 5,000, 6,000. So, I mean, in comparison, it really doesn't uh, seem like a, a crazy amount for something that is consciously made. And I think as, a, as designers and as a country, we need to actively work in design for that 90% uh, in, and not just for the top 10% that 
you know we're all actually doing so branching off from what you said about our self sufficiency as a country and also designing for not just the 1% recent global happenings have sort of uh, drawn our attention to a whole range of discussions about history and traditional crafts and even colonialism and also we also see a rise in indian companies claiming to use khadi and traditional fabrics and with a minimalist twist because that's that's the trend right now globally and these fabrics and these products tend to be geared towards a western audience or an upper class indian audience so how do you feel about this as someone who works so closely with the makers of these uh, traditional fabrics uh it could seem like it's pretentious but uh, not in all cases uh because uh, in many times getting that right quality is uh, the hardest part you know because since all of these are made by hand uh, there's natural uh, to have some difference in quality sometimes it goes way uh, par acceptable norms that is i'm not saying by any industrial standard but even uh, for any of us to accept super quality i don't think uh, we'd like that so for brands to get that right um is quite a challenge so i i think a lot of them do work very hard uh, to achieve that and of course naturally they will design according to their uh, target audience like me included i wouldn't want anything that's too flashy or that has a, a a design element just for the sake of putting something there yeah um, you know so for that i'm all in for uh, brands who are working with the current trends because we also need to sell right so yes that and of course uh, many times uh, the viewers themselves feel very happy when they see that their product is being worn by someone uh you know i say in the us or in the uk it uh, they feel like okay what they've made has traveled so far or it's been appreciated by uh, other people as well um so yeah i mean i i don't think it's as uh, horrifying as we think it is so if the brand is owned by say a british person or an nri who is in britain would that have the potential to uh, grow into a form of colonialism i mean uh, any form of exploitation whether they are uh, nris or indians is wrong so at this point i'm not too worried about that also uh, there are in fact uh, a few artisans i do know who specifically don't like to work with indians because of the lack of discipline that uh, many indians in their experience have shown you know i called one or two organizations to you know i wanted to get some sampling done and they said no we only work with international brands <laughs> you know <laughs> i was of course disappointed but i also get uh, that you know they also want something easy uh, to work with so <laughs> you know in a way uh, the argument could also go that indian brands should work for india first and also i do think you know um, we keep talking about uh, the crafts people but also we all consume our gadgets our entertainment none of that is specifically indian or indian owned so i mean if we're worried about colonization then i think we are all colonized anyway 
<laughs> and uh, speaking of Indian brands, uh, yeah. we also see a lot of Indian uh, mainstream fast fashion brands incorporate elements of traditional design. Uh, so they may not have a real ikat fabric, but they might have an ikat print on on like a generic fabric. Yeah. And they've not really thought about the community or the origin of these fabrics and whether it's responsible to do this. But for textile designers working in a fast fashion setting, I feel like there's this constant need to sort of churn out new designs based on what is seen on a runway. Or there's like spin-offs from, say, Ritu Kumar and Manish Malhotra and those designers. So what do you feel about this and where does one draw the line where do you think it stops being inspiration and then becomes appropriation? Uh, printed ikat cannot be called ikat. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Since uh, obviously it has not gone through any of the processes that an ikat is uh, you know, traditionally put through. This, so, and it's just uh, blasphemous you know, when I see these printed ikats and bandhanis and oh, I can't, I just cannot stand it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know oh, in fact uh, I went to an exhibition and I saw one sari that was hanging and it looked very similar to uh, the saris that my friend designs I have not seen work similar to hers anywhere in the last couple of years so when I saw that over there I was just really taken aback so I obviously took pictures of it and I sent it to her and it was pretty much like a very very cheap uh, knockoff of her work and I know she takes uh, so many days uh, and uh, so many people and it takes a lot of effort for her to make that one sari and that sari which I saw a copy it was a, a printed version so she does this registering work and that sari was a very cheap not even a nicely copied it was so badly copied uh, like just a printed version of her sari it's really sad because she takes so much time to make them and these guys are just printing it, uh, you know, like by like hundreds or thousands of pieces a day. It's it's really uh, disturbing actually. And um, most of these places, obviously, they don't understand um, that there are uh, ethics uh, that one needs to follow. And it's, it's uh, definitely really sad to see when uh, top brands also do it. So I think there's this Instagram page called Diet Sabia where he calls out uh, people who copy. But I don't think they go so much into people um, appropriating traditional design because I guess you really need a very keen eye to notice that. So obviously if you're copying, then that's definitely not inspired work. Inspiration can only be a starting point of a story. It cannot be the story itself. And when you're telling a story that is not yours without any sort of acknowledgement to the to the people behind it, then that is de- you know that is just appropriating. And also, you know, it's uh, myopic to think that only the big fashion brands copy because I have seen many artisans uh, do it too. Although they don't do it maliciously or with an intent to you know copy. So for them, it's like, okay, uh, can I see that as a challenge and can I make it? Uh, so this is where designers come in because we need to let them know that, okay, this is not, you know, ethical. It is not appropriate. So you can maybe uh, copy it. You can imitate it, but keep it as an experiment and see what you can do different with it. 
because of course people do need to imitate to be able to learn and understand so i think the solution would be more at looking at how that sort of copying each other can result in something new and original uh, rather than say yeah. that this is my work or this is your work <laughs> yeah. like, you know i guess this is where open source is important right that's a really great point i think <laughs> and i think more people need to start uh, looking at tradition textiles design yeah. from that perspective yeah open source again without copying so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> creative commons yes so uh, but then from a consumer perspective how do you think someone can tell the difference between something that's a real ikat and like an ikat print uh, especially now because we all have uh, instagram and pinterest and everything just looks so good in those photographs so how is one to sort of distinguish when and and not get ripped off when buying stuff right over instagram um the first step i think is to ask questions so you should ask the people you're buying from it's important to ask them um you know how do you get this made what is this what is special about it why is it if you find something expensive it's okay to ask why is it expensive most brands are happy to tell you uh you know what has gone behind it for them to price it a certain way you know and also read as much as you can um i guess uh it's naive to think that all the information will be presented to you as consumers uh, we need to have the onus uh, on ourselves as well to educate ourselves in what we are buying and uh, so there are enough and more online uh, resources on how to identify this from that or what is an ikat or how, what the process that it goes through and of course you know if you know that uh, a specific brand or anyone any small business is or any business is evading your questions or not being very clear about it then you know that uh, there's a good chance they're not selling what they claim and i guess it's also important to take your time to shop until you're really sure that uh, it fits all your parameters that you're looking for whether it's sustainability whether it's authenticity um you know and uh, although like this is not really the situation for it uh, but you know visiting uh, the designer or the artisan can really help like when you visit their studio or when you visit an artisan's uh, workspace you really do get an idea and a feel for uh, you know whether it's genuine or not so yeah you feel more confident about what you're investing in it. that seems like a lot of homework for the consumer <laughs> and why not yeah i think it maybe the future is not about just buying one piece but about the whole experience of how yes. you looked for that one yes. piece and found it and and like experience of uh, researching and understanding the process behind that piece yeah. and then owning it hopefully for a couple of generations exactly no it's uh, it's easy to throw uh, mud on other people or small businesses saying that how do i know that they are authentic but but it's difficult to do the homework behind it yourself right i mean if you're concerned about these things then these are the things one must do if you are not then if you really are okay with just believing what uh, people are saying then that's fine too there is no hard and fast rule to it but uh, i do believe that the onus should equally fall on the consumer and not just on brands to prove that you know we are working uh, honestly because i have been on both ends of this now <laughs> so i totally understand uh, you know both sides to this 
and so has has the work you, that you do also influenced the way in which you yeah i mean uh, because also i'm in this field uh, if i want to buy something very specific so my wish list is uh, you know like i want an ilkal of this color you know <laughs> it's a very simple wish list but the idea is that uh, i make it a travel list so if i want to buy an ilkal i will plan that okay some day when i go to ilkal i will buy it so that way i get to do a travel and i get to buy right at the source and it's really slow because you know uh, it's obviously not possible to go as soon as i think of it so yeah and that way i also get to see the whole process behind it and uh, you know all of it skilly uh, most of my shopping has happened that way i just wow. yeah i've just managed to buy on my travels when i actually stitch most of my clothes because i'm very particular about fit so i just end up buying fabrics at exhibitions and getting them stitched to my size and most of my clothes have lasted me like for the last uh, 8 10 years and even the clothes i have now i'm hoping will last me at least for the next 10 years <laughs> so that's how my shopping has changed so speaking of shopping and your travels in order to shop not everyone is fortunate enough to be able to uh, invest that much time in doing that but since you're a textile designer that's something that's i think one of the privileges yeah <laughs> but for the common public who is interested in buying innovative handcrafted products craft exhibitions like dastakar have been central to uh, promoting craft and innovative textiles right so do you think in the current covid-19 situation that these exhibitions may not be an option anymore and are, are there any long term strategies uh, to get through this in order to continue promoting innovation in craft as well as promoting allowing people to sort of discover like the, the whole experience of going through an exhibition and and finding a fabric and then turning that into something uh, i think we're all still figuring it out <laughs> at this point online seems like the best option um, you know because it's easily accessible to a lot of the potential buyers uh but uh, on the other hand it's not possible for craftsmen to manage all of the production that is creating the fabric and sales is a bit too much to expect from them uh but you know there is this uh, collective that has come up in this lockdown uh, as a response to helping uh, the artisan and the handmade sector it's called uh, creative dignity so these are uh, different people you know from craft design uh, and the social sector uh, and related related sectors they've come together to help artisans uh, through the situation you know in whatever capacity that they need so whether it is uh, design input or whether it is uh, helping them with sales uh, they connect them with interested and uh, potential buyers so i mean i guess in the long term a forum like this is super crucial and we need to build on it for the future so that people can connect quickly to the right people instead of having to meander about hmm. and eventually i guess exhibitions will open up it may take uh, maybe a year or so but i guess the touch and feel is definitely something uh, that online cannot replicate so i'm hopeful that we'll all be able to meet through these craft exhibitions sometime not too far from now 
This was so interesting, especially for me, because I haven't had a chance to be so directly involved in textiles and crafts before. Hearing from Aditi about what goes into the weaving process was quite eye-opening for me as well. I was able to draw quite a few parallels to my own experience working with traditional craftspeople. I think designers from all disciplines can draw some parallels from what Aditi mentioned about partnering with a craftsperson to design solutions. True. As someone who's pretty hands-on myself, I can attest to the fact that a whole new world of possibility just opens up when you move away from the drawing board and actually start working with the materials. Yeah. And this conversation also made me think about the consumer journey from considering to buying to maintaining products, especially something like handmade textiles. It definitely seems like the investment goes so much beyond uh, just the initial monetary aspect. And I feel like even our current way of living is not exactly conducive to the care that some of these products require. And one of the reasons why fast fashion became so pervasive is probably because you could just toss all your clothes into the washing machine without a care. Yeah. And also, uh, maybe a decade ago, there existed a whole maintenance ecosystem when it came to delicate fabrics. Like there was the neighborhood darning guy. Uh, If you had a white sari that got a spill on it, you could get it dyed or block printed. And this definitely is not common anymore. Yeah. And that's why I believe that the circular economy is so important. And as designers, we need to think in systems in order to create products that live up to their potential Mm. and also help consumers to see the value in investing in them. Yeah. And I also feel the continued support in educating consumers about what the best option for them would be and also to make them confident, right? Make them feel like you can take care of this. We are with you. Yeah. I feel that can make the world of a difference. For example, uh, when it comes to making a decision of, say, composting, a company like Daily Dump is doing a phenomenal job. I feel they're so invested in your whole lifestyle of composting beyond just that one-time purchase. That's a great example of how a systems approach can convince people to make sustainable choices. Hey listeners, what fascinates you the most about Indian textiles? And what challenges you? Tweet to us and you might just hear us talk about you in part two of this episode. Yeah, coming to your favorite listening platform shortly. As always, you can find the transcript along with the references for this episode on our blog designlota.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye.